0: Welcome to Late Kick is Live. It is Tuesday night, October 20th, the year of our Lord, 2020. Here we are right back in Nashville, Tennessee. We got a loaded show tonight. Now, I know a lot of you have probably looked at the slate this weekend, and you say, hmm, last Saturday I had Georgia-Alabama. This Saturday, where's the marquee game? And I'll grant you that. And we're not going to try and sell you on a massive slate that's not really a massive slate. I still think it's pretty sneaky good, and we're going to talk a lot more about that Thursday. But while normally our Tuesday shows would be wall-to-wall predictions. We're gonna do a lot of that Thursday night. I figured if we have a little bit of a dip in quality of games on Saturday, this is the perfect time to do a lot of our mid-season stuff that normally we wouldn't be able to even fit in on a live show. So tonight, obviously we've had to be SEC heavy because not a lot of other places have been playing football. Big Ten's about to change that. So tonight, we're going to do a lot of takeaways from the SEC East, SEC West, but then we're headed up to the Big Ten, and we're talking about our biggest questions, and I guess you could call them our revised biggest questions, because, Colin, it seems like five years ago, but we did a segment called Biggest Questions in the Big Ten, and then the biggest question was... Hey, We're gonna play and now you're gonna play. So now we got more questions, opt ins, opt outs, all that stuff. We're gonna dive pretty deep on the Big Ten tonight. We're gonna dive deep on Thursday too. We're also gonna do the mood tracker as we normally do on Thursday nights. That, that kind of floats, it ping pongs between Thursday and Tuesday. We're gonna do that tonight. We have added best bets on the Ramen Noodle Express, all that plus already released two of them today. So make sure you're following me on Twitter at Late Kick Josh. Every time I say it, I see an influx of followers and I appreciate that. So if you're a holdout or if you keep forgetting, do it. Plus we have a lot of fun there. We talk about a whole lot of stuff during the week and it's a place that you can go to escape basically all the stuff that you say you hate about social media. Cause I can assure you uh, the Braves are out of the playoffs now so I won't be talking about the Braves for another few months. So now it's just college football, the occasional Fleetwood Mac post, maybe a video of a freight train every now and then, a few gifts here and there. That's about what you find on my Twitter account. So it's, it's fun for all ages. So let's dive into this. Uh, we're going to start with some takeaways. Pretty broad. Then we're going to get more granular. We're going to put the microscope on it, and we're going to zoom in. And we're going to start in the SEC East. Our biggest SEC East takeaways so far through 2020. We're through, what are we, five weeks now. And there you see the SEC Eastern Division standings. If you're watching on the YouTube side, Colin's showing them to you. It's Georgia, Florida. Hello, Kentucky, Tennessee. And then you got South Carolina. It is October, by the way, so be careful. You never know what can happen in October. Ask Auburn. That's Georgia last year. And then you got Missouri down there, I think a pretty underrated team right now with Bazelak at quarterback, and Vanderbilt is Vanderbilt. So let's start with Georgia, and let's talk about some quarterback suspicions that have been confirmed. I don't think it's all that hard to figure out what the biggest takeaway from Georgia is right now. Now listen, sometimes if you watch a game like we saw Saturday night, where Georgia got, as it turns out, handled on the final scoreboard by Alabama, you say to yourself, oh man, that hurts. And we're gonna talk about this a little bit more in the mood tracker, but to me, I don't think it hurts. It hurts to lose, no one likes to lose, but I think you wanna know the truth about yourself and you wanna know the truth as early as possible. That's why a lot of these major programs schedule major out of conference games early in the season. Some of it's for recruiting, some of it is for strength of schedule, but I also think they just wanna find out what their weaknesses are. Remember, we always use the damn metaphor and we use the dam metaphor in that every dam's got cracks in it. Every team's got cracks. You just got to put the water pressure against it, and you got to find out where the cracks are. Well, you could play a bunch of high school teams early in the year, and you could look great. That doesn't mean your cracks aren't there. You're just going to get painfully exposed later in the year. So what's the crack? Well, it's pretty obvious. It was a really big crack. It is a lower ceiling on offensive potential because of limitations of quarterback. We know that. It's been confirmed now. So now you kind of hit the reset button, and— if you're Georgia, okay, we know what our weaknesses are. We understand what the truth about ourselves are. We know, what, we know what our identity is, and we know what we have to do to ultimately get where we wanna be. Now, let me tell you, there's not a lot of information out there to be had about the status of JT Daniels right now. I would tell you if I knew otherwise. I don't, and trust me, very, very, very few people outside of friends and family around the Georgia program know what the status of J.T. Daniels is. J.T. Daniels, of course, is the transfer quarterback, comes in from Southern Cal in the offseason. Jamie Newman's there. Jamie Newman opts out. And Dewan Mathis doesn't work out in week one. And now Stetson Bennett, a guy who was running with the fours a couple of months ago, he's the quarterback. Obvious limitations there. And so the question has become, when is J.T. Daniels going to be ready? Uh, the presumption out there that I agree with is, They have to have JT Daniels, a healthy JT Daniels, a capable Daniels, if they're going to maximize their chances of contending for national championship. Now, that's what remains to be seen. I have a sneaking suspicion, and I talked to some people today that kind of feel the same way, that we're getting pretty close to seeing him play. The follow-up question is going to be, at what level is he playing? Because I think it may be a little dangerous to expect him to just pop out of the gate, and, I mean, he's playing at a five-star level. This is a guy who's coming off a knee injury. He's been cleared, but he hasn't played meaningful football this year yet. Hadn't played in quite a long while. But I will say this before we move on from Georgia. One of the questions that's been answered is offensive coordinator. Todd Munkin, and I was talking about this on Twitter and on the uh, Dogs 24-7 site earlier today, I thought he called a great game the other night. I know they lost 41-24. I thought he called a really good game. Uh, Good balance. There were open receivers. Uh, There were a lot of first downs that were more scheme first downs instead of A guy just out-athleted someone to make a first down. So I feel good about him. Can we feel good about quarterback? We'll see. Let's move on to Florida. I think right now my biggest takeaway for Florida is they better use this break they have right now that was unscheduled to figure themselves out on defense. And they better come out of this break looking a whole lot better defensively. Dan Mullen was very vocal coming out of that Texas A&M loss. He was very vocal about his defense. And, you know, made it sound like he was going to kind of get his hands dirty a little bit and talked about it. It Doesn't matter what our playbook looks like. It doesn't matter how exotic our calls are. If guys don't grasp how to execute it, then it doesn't matter how cool it sounds. It doesn't matter how thick the playbook looks. None of that matters. And so here's the false takeaway that I think some people got from that Alabama Georgia game the other night. I had some buddies texting me even during the game watching Alabama with success throwing the ball on Georgia, and they said, ooh, I think this kind of makes Florida the favorite in the East because if Alabama can throw on them, that means Florida can throw on them. Well, it may, but let me tell you a couple of aspects of that Alabama team I know exist that I don't necessarily know exist at Florida. Number one, an elite pass-protecting offensive line. Mac Jones was given a lot of time the other night. Number two, an elite downfield passing attack. Now I'm not going as far as the dudes over at Pro Football Focus and telling you everything outside of, "Oh, your quarterback's kind of trash, secret trash, Kyle Trask." No, I'm not going that route. But I am saying Alabama stretches the field a whole lot more than Florida. Dan Mullen is a masterful tactician, masterful offensive coordinator. But, you know, one of the allegations in that Pro Football Focus piece was on the money. And that is Florida, to this point, and this is no knock against them, but to this point this year, a lot of their explosive plays have been a lot of underneath stuff that athletes have turned into explosive plays. Now, the reason I mention that is not to take away from what they've done, But the reason I do mention it is, well, if you automatically assume that's happening against Georgia, you're kidding yourself. Everything's contested when you play Georgia. Everybody's defended underneath when you play Georgia. So you may complete some stuff, but you're not popping it for 25 more yards consistently against them, which brings me back to the point about defense. You have got to be able to stand up against their run because if you don't get a big lead on them, so outside of that possibility, like Alabama did the other night, and you're not forcing Stetson Bennett to play catch-up, or maybe it's JT Daniels by that point. But if you're not forcing that, then they're running the ball on you at will. And if you can't stand up to the run better than Florida's front has so far, I don't know that that's nearly as decided. In fact, I think maybe the balance of power in the SEC East still remains tilted to Georgia if that's the case. Now, here's what could happen. Florida is not void of talent. Florida is not void of really smart defensive coaches. So what could happen is they could come out of this break and look like a a different unit over there. And they have things figured out. At that point, that's when that comparison becomes a whole lot more interesting. Let's go to Knoxville, Tennessee. Tennessee is right now in 2020. And Tennessee's got a couple of losses. The last one was very ugly. But I'm looking at 2020. Jeremy Pruitt's certainly looking at 2020. But as I look at 2020... I am thinking to myself, they better get 2021 and beyond figured out and they need to use some of this year to do so. Now, again, this is not how a coaching staff can afford to think, but I think you can accomplish what I said while also focusing on the here and now. And what I'm talking about here is I'm not one to punt on teams after they lose a couple of games. I talked about this in the Late Kick Extra podcast the other day. A lot of times, once teams are eliminated from The SEC championship picture or the playoff picture, you just kind of cast them to the side and, oh, well, we'll talk about them again when it comes time for bowl season picks. No, I mean, there's a lot still to be gleaned from Tennessee, and there's a lot still to watch from Tennessee. First and foremost, and get ready for it because it's coming up pretty soon, is who they start at quarterback this Saturday against Alabama. And there's a lot of debate on this. I didn't think there was much debate to be had, but I was proven wrong because a lot of people have debated me on this. I do not think, obviously, Jarrett Garantano is the future at quarterback here. He can't be. Uh, But I also think that if anyone on that roster is, it's Harrison Bailey. And you saw him late in the game against Kentucky. Now, what my point was, was, listen, if, if you're not going to contend for the East, Why in the world not get a head start on finding out what you have, for better or for worse, with Harrison Bailey? Because if he's not the guy, and I don't know that you would find that out this year, but, I mean, if you start to get the sense that, ooh, I'm not completely bought in on him, well, you still have to address quarterback. So you can either hide him and then start figuring out next year, or we can start figuring it out right now. Now, the retort I got was, well, you can't just be throwing him to the wolves against Alabama, why? it's not middle school. I mean, that's a scholarship quarterback. I know what the dynamic is. I know he's missed time. I know they had COVID related stuff, but listen, did they put him on the football field the other night? They did. Okay. That means he's healthy. He's good enough to play. They trust him enough to be on the field. So if those boxes are checked, then here's the next question I ask. Have you watched Alabama's defense this year? This is not exactly a vintage unit. So I remember once upon a time, a kid by the name of Josh Dobbs getting his first start against this same team in a much better defense, and things turned out kinda okay for him. So this is not diaper time, it's not pacifier time. This is the SEC. If you're on scholarship down here and you're in uniform on that sideline, then you should be trusted to be put in a game, and they've already put him in the game. So I'm talking about 2021 and beyond here when I say, I wanna see Harrison Bailey against Alabama, point blank. Uh, We'll see how they choose to go about that there. Let's talk about South Carolina and Kentucky kind of simultaneously here, Colin. I don't know what this will look like in terms of video, but I thought the same thing for both teams. So Carolina just came off a win against Auburn. Kentucky just came off a wide-margin victory against Tennessee. Tennessee. And both of them are in a metaphorical zone that I like to call the spider web zone right now. Some teams qualify for this. A lot of teams don't. But when the spider web theory is in effect, some of you have heard me talk about this already this week, here's what it is. What it means is you possess a roster that is not going to stand up toe-to-toe against the big boys in the conference. And you also possess a roster that does not maybe necessarily possess a whole lot of game-breaking playmakers on it. But what you do have is you have the potential to play disciplined, you, you have the potential to force turnovers, you have the potential to be very stubborn in your offensive play calling, and essentially you just wait someone out. So here's where the spider web theory comes into effect. It's exactly what Kentucky did Saturday. It's exactly what South Carolina did Saturday. These were not performances. If you didn't watch these games, Carolina did not beat Auburn by going up and down the field on them. Kentucky did not beat Tennessee by going up and down the field on them, nor does a spider web come at you and engulf you. What a spider web does is it gets built there in the corner of a doorway. And then you walk in a dark room or outside, you know, in the barn and it's dark and you can't see. And you walk into that spider web. Now, the spiderweb didn't force you to do that. You walked into it, maybe voluntarily, maybe involuntarily most of the time, but you walked into it. But the point is, once you're in the spider web, it's really hard to get it off of you. And once Tennessee walked into that Kentucky spiderweb, they weren't getting it off. And once Auburn walked into that South Carolina spiderweb, which means once they started turning the ball over, and once Tennessee started turning the ball over, it was done. And they're sitting there just trying to pick it out of their hair, and, and they're, they're you know they're brushing their arms off and stuff, and it's too late at that point. You got the spider web all over you. Well, the point is that doesn't have to be a one-week thing. That formula is duplicable. LSU is welcoming in South Carolina Saturday. Okay, Will Muschamp a couple weeks ago was in must-win mode, and they went to Vanderbilt, took care of business. Now they took care of business. Dare I say we're we're looking at a winning streak. Three in a row makes a winning streak. Last time I checked, and. Last time I checked, it is still October. Anything can happen in October. I don't have a fancy name for what they're doing in Kentucky. They're just getting Mark Stoops a lifetime contract in Kentucky. That's all they're doing there. I think I was smoking a cigar and drinking on the bus after the game. So you don't think he, you don't think he doesn't understand how important that win was. Check out his mood after the game. But they could do that. You know, uh, Missouri plays Kentucky Saturday. They could do that again. Now, that's a roster that Kentucky goes toe-to-toe with and probably is superior to. But Kentucky's going to play Georgia in a couple of weeks, for example. If you don't think Kentucky isn't capable of building the spider web and having Georgia walk into it, Georgia turns the ball over a couple of times like they did against Alabama, Kentucky could beat Georgia if they do that. If they were plus three turnovers, plus four turnovers, absolutely they could do that. Carolina is a touchdown dog going to Baton Rouge this Saturday. You have no clue who's starting a quarterback for LSU. They could build a spiderweb down there. Spiderwebs are a whole lot easier to understand than talking about zone defense, so that's why I choose to do it that way. Let's now take ourselves, as I like to say, across the Chattahoochee River. This doesn't necessarily geographically totally make sense, but it is the line of demarcation in my mind between the SEC East and the SEC West. Biggest takeaways to this point in the season in the SEC West, Alabama, is going to have to play a different kind of defense this year. As Colin shows you, the standings there, Crimson Tide 4-0, clearly in the driver's seat. They've already got a game. All, well, they already beat Texas A&M, so they got kind of like a game-and-a-half lead there. And then it's a bunch of, hmm, Auburn is really 1-3, and, and Arkansas is really 3-1, and one, even though Colin went by the book. He had to put what their records actually are. I'm telling you what they should be. And I don't ever say that, but this is literally one of those should be cases. And then you got LSU, Mississippi State, Ole Miss. So let's talk about these. Alabama is gonna have to be opportunistic on defense. They wanna win a national championship. I think we've learned that by now. Elite is probably not in the cards for this defense this year, but I'll tell you what is in the cards. The way they played the other night is their formula to win a national championship. It's gonna involve swallowing some pride. For fans, it's going to involve getting comfortable or at least accepting a lot of what has been unacceptable to you in the past. You know what you have. Now, what we have there and what worked Saturday night against Georgia is obviously one of the most prolific offenses to this point in the season the sport has ever seen. So you know you can score at will virtually on people, even the best defense in America, in my opinion. So you know you have that. And you know you have the ability to force the issue defensively. You may not be elite. You may not even be very good defensively. But what you can be is opportunistic by the sheer factor that you have so many athletes on the field. I want to take you back. You Alabama fans will remember this vividly and painfully. A couple of years ago, I remember being out in California. We were in Santa Clara National Championship game, Alabama versus Clemson. And I remember Alabama was moving the ball on Clemson very early on, and I thought to myself, man, I think they're gonna run away with this game. That's the game Clemson blew Alabama out in. How could you be so wrong early in the game? How could you feel such a way about a team early in the game and then them end up getting blown out? What happened was Clemson and Brent Venables played the kind of defense that night that Alabama's gonna need to play this year to win a championship. They didn't worry about shutting you down. They didn't think they could, and they were right. They couldn't, but what they did was, was they forced turnovers, and that's what worked the other night against Georgia. Bama didn't shut Georgia down offensively, far from it, but what they did is they were able to force turnovers, and when you got an offense like they have, you don't have to force many of them. you just got to steal a couple of possessions. They can't punt the ball over 25 yards. Apparently, they can kick field goals now. They can't kick the ball out of the end zone to save their life, but what they can do is they can force some turnovers. That's going to be the formula this year for them to win a national championship. As for the team that won the championship last year and is far from that lofty goal this year is the LSU Tigers. I said in the beginning of the year, Now I will now reiterate it, I think LSU is going to learn a whole lot more from 2020 than they learned from 2019. No one really learns a ton of valuable lessons when everything goes right. That's true in life. That's true in football, too. So what lessons do you think could be learned here? Because I came up with a few I think right now, some tough lessons are being learned down there about how many attitudes need to change. What was the collective attitude going into the offseason? You had a lot of folks around there that had been either part of a championship team or been part of a championship organization, depending on what your role was. How did attitudes around there change? Did complacency set in? Also, how did you vet new hires? What was your criteria? What was your standard for going about new hires? You know, famously, Ed Orgeron was very vocal about the fact that he thought they were going to be better defensively this year than they were last year. Well, of course, they're not. And so who is that a reflection on? Is it a Bo Pelini thing? Bo Pelini didn't hire himself. And so, um, you know, maybe we get to the season's end and there are some moves made to rectify some flaws that maybe Ed Orgeron has seen in his own approach and how he went about things this offseason. Listen, they had so much going on behind the scenes. Some of it you know about, some of it you don't know about. Some of it was obvious. So, I mean, it's talk about an unprecedented year. In the middle of an unprecedented year, LSU was dealing with what would even in a normal year be unprecedented circumstances. How they handle this year and then how they react to it, that's ultimately going to determine the next five-year stretch for LSU football, a whole lot more than winning a championship in historic fashion in 2019 would. Now, I'm talking Tigers here, but I'm going to Auburn. There is a fear If you watch sec football a lot there's this fear people always have about auburn it's the rabbit out of the hat fear and uh what it is is trying to figure out auburn is like trying to nail jello to a wall and when you think you haven't figured out that's when the jello falls to the ground and they totally reinvent themselves mid-season and they pull a rabbit out of a hat, and they end up like beating Alabama in the Iron Bowl and extending on another seven years for $100 billion. That's the kind of stuff Auburn pulls on the regular. Well, here's what my takeaway is from them right now. There is no rabbit, as far as I can tell, in the 2020 hat for Auburn. The offense has lacked any kind of discernible identity. A quarterback play, to me, has regressed there, and that's very disappointing because I had pretty moderate to high hopes for Bo Nix this year. Defense, not only did they lose the likes of Brown and and Marlon Davidson, but they also, this season, have lost K.J. Britt, who was every bit as valuable to their defense as, for example, Dylan Moses was to Alabama last year. That's the quarterback of your defense. I want you to think about this. Had a coach tell me this uh, yesterday or today. I can't remember. Days are all running together now. I got home at like 5 o'clock this morning. Had to drive from Columbus. So the coach told me, independent of what day it was, said let me let me ask you something when's the last time that you looked at Auburn's defense and you said to yourself well I'll tell you the way to attack them is just straight up the middle and I said I don't remember saying that man not since Kevin Steele's been there but it's kind of true right now Kentucky did it Georgia did it that's how South Carolina went about it now Carolina didn't hang 700 yards on them but they did enough to continue to paper cut him to death. And Georgia certainly got a surge all night long and Kentucky had a lot of success against him. So the point is, they are void of what their normal identity is on offense and defense. And Tank Bigsby right now, Tank Bigsby is one of the few bright spots offensively for them, but that's the point. I mean, Tank Bigsby was one of maybe three or four names that you thought you'd be counting on there. Tank Bigsby is carrying the water for them right now. That's a true freshman out of Callaway High School. I was standing on sidelines in a high school stadium this time last year watching Bigsby run with Malzon standing next to me on the sideline, by the way, I just remembered that. So my point is, The game plan right now is to just attack Auburn up the middle because they're not what they normally are right up the middle, right up the heart of their defense. And if you're facing them defensively, well, just wait, man, they'll turn it over. That's essentially what Muschamp in South Carolina did the other day. Just wait, they'll turn it over. And you wait, and they turn it over. You build a spider web, they walk right into it. At Texas A&M, though, things are much different. I'm going to say something here, and I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm actually going to pull the graphic up. Okay, so I'm going to say something here. I don't want you to freak out. It's not a prediction, but I am going to say that my biggest takeaway for AM right now is they are a college football playoff contender, okay? That much, I really think I know. Now, it's not a prediction they're going to make it there, but I think we have to acknowledge something. I think we have to acknowledge their loss to Alabama now that we frame it within the context of what Alabama also did against Georgia. I don't think it looks nearly like the end of the world it looked like when it happened. And you combine that with the fact that all a and did was go right back home, get up off the deck and beat Florida in mild upset fashion, and then took care of Mississippi State in a game that didn't impress many of you, but I was impressed because they did what they're supposed to do. Uh, that's a spot that has cut the legs out from under many a team. You're coming off a big time program defining win, you go on the road, you're less than a touchdown favorite, and you end up handling them for most of the afternoon. That was AM did what Tennessee wasn't able to do last week. Very similar point spread situations, radically different outcomes. Well, the point is so now AM, as I said, they're going to go quiet for a while. They got a bye week right now. I'm going to read you the rest of their schedule unless something changes. They've got Arkansas at home on the 31st, which is not an easy game anymore. Then they got back to back roadies at Carolina, at Tennessee. Then they got back-to-back home games against Ole Miss and LSU, and then they'll finish the season at Auburn. Guys, they're favored in every one of those games. Doesn't mean they're going to win them. But I'm telling you right now, as we sit here today, Texas A&M will be favored in every one of those games. And so what if they're sitting there slowly finding their identity? They've lost a lot of talent at wide receiver from all sorts of different issues this year, so they're not going to necessarily be able to bomb away on folks. They have the threat of mobility at quarterback. Isaiah Spiller has really come on at running back for them. They understand, I think, in watching them this year, they understand what they are and what they aren't offensively. Uh, they have improved defensively. They're really good on the lines of scrimmage. Okay, They can disrupt with the guys they got up front defensively they got a more than serviceable offensive line they got a really good offensive line actually so the remaining question for me outside of will they be favored in every game is if they are and they start to rattle off some wins i can't remember under fisher where this team has ever had to show how they handle late season expectation they they've had it early in the year like they've graced the cover of many a preview magazine and that was even before fisher got there but they haven't ever gotten into the deeper waters of November and late November this year. I mean, what if they're what if they're carrying a number six ranking when they um, when they play LSU the second to last week of the year? And LSU is looking to looking at that game as their Super Bowl because they're already out of it. And Auburn, Ditto, to end the regular season. Who knows how that goes? That's, that's one I don't think anyone can answer. I don't even think Aggie fans have the slightest clue how their program would handle late season playoff talk, but I'm sure you want to find out. I do want to hit on Arkansas here because they deserve to be hit on. I, I told you I am observing them as a three-in-one team right now. Sam Pittman is 2020's Ed Orgeron. The only difference between the two is he has a lot less raw talent on his roster, so he is not capable, and that team's not capable of you know rattling off a run to a national championship. But make no mistake, this is the guy that has surpassed everyone's wildest expectations this year. This is a guy who is coaching a team that was so vastly inferior against virtually every team they would have played last year in this conference outside of Vanderbilt. I don't even know that they played Vandy last year, but outside of that matchup, they were viewed as so inferior. I had someone tell me this was the 13th roster in the SEC, and there wasn't necessarily an extremely wide gap between them and Vanderbilt. I didn't believe that last part. But I did believe that it's it's reasonable that that's the 13th best roster in the SEC this year. And look at what they're doing right now. The hiring of that coordinator combo of Kendall Bryles and Barry Odom, phenomenal. Very opportunistic and phenomenal. And let me give you another little FYI. They're gonna be able to recruit. Pittman's a phenomenal recruiter anyway, but I want you to think about kids out there who are, who are fringe guys. Maybe they don't have the committable offers from Alabama or LSU or Georgia. Maybe they don't have those. But what they're watching is maybe they grow up watching SEC football. So you know a lot of kids want to play in the SEC. And maybe you got some of those East Texas kids or maybe you got some of those Florida kids and they're by the hundreds down there. And maybe they're watching Arkansas and they're saying, well, I want to play SEC ball. I want to be competitive. And I got a certain wiring about me And that program up there in arkansas really kind of reflects the way that i view myself the kind of kid you mark my words the kind of kid that arkansas is going to be able to get the kind of kids they're going to be in it for are the kind of kids that you want to build your roster and build a foundation on to begin with like those by default are the kinds of kids that you're going to be able to win with so they're going to be able to recruit up there i think arkansas is going to make a little more noise than you expect them to in recruiting but hey I got to find out what they're going to do the rest of the season first, cause as much as I looked at A and M schedule, there I'm looking at Arkansas, and they got A and M coming up, and they got Tennessee, and they play Florida, and they play LSU, and they play Alabama. So they tossed you in the wood chipper before the season started. Then they tossed you in the wood chipper while you played Auburn, and yet we applaud you anyway. Here we will we will wave the Razorback flag along with you. Now we got to ask some questions, and we got to go to the Big Ten to do it. We've looked forward to this for a while. You remember, Colin, what was it, a month, month and a half ago? seemed like we led every show with rumors about the Big Ten, what's the latest we're hearing on the Big Ten, and I can't tell you how much the traffic we got on those videos exceeded our expectation for how many people would watch those videos. And we weren't doing it with clickbait. We were just delivering what we were hearing every time. But I'll tell you what it told me. What it told me is, hey, when it comes time for the Big Ten season to start, don't be an idiot. Talk about the Big Ten a whole lot, because obviously there is a really big thirsty audience out here for Big Ten football. So in our effort to make this a national show and not just a regional show, let's talk about biggest questions in the Big Ten, kind of part two. We've already done this one time, but that that was a generation ago it seems like now. Let's start in Ohio State. Let's start in Columbus. I would love to know what level of play I should expect to see from Ohio State this year. The list of guys they lost last year is like a good couple of decades worth of talent for most programs. They lost Young, Hamilton, and Okuda, um, uh, Fuller, they lost Arnett, Harrison. Like they lost so many top notch guys. Now, you know how they recruit? They're, their cupboard's never empty up there, but there are a lot of moving pieces, a lot of moving parts. And also, you just add in the general uncertainty of what the season's going to look like for everyone. Getting Sean Wade back is so huge. I know Buckeye fans understand that. But there's a lot of uncertainty and a lot of question marks, albeit talented ones, in this secondary. And you got Coombs and Madison who are kind of a new combination of elements, at least. You know, Madison's not new there, but Coombs is as defensive coordinator. And so you got a lot of new. Sean Wade is, a, I think, a big-time stabilizing factor and a true one corner that you have there. That would have been even more uncertainty. But I think it's reasonable to expect some hiccups early. Like, I think a lot of people are confu- kind of confused by the week one point spread on their game against Nebraska, which is 27. And I've had a lot of you DMing me on Twitter, at Late Kick Josh, by the way, and you've been asking, hey, how's this not free money? Like, I think Ohio State will want to run the score up. They may want to run the score up, but I'll tell you what you could see. What you could see is a game where they run it up and it's like uh, 45 to 20 or something like that because... Are there are just a few more hiccups defensively. You know this. I mean, you've seen how this works before with other teams. And, you know, maybe you come out of it and you say, mm, got some stuff to clean up defensively. But, man, Justin Fields in this offense, sky-high potential. That kind of game could be the way it unfolds early. And you got Penn State in week two, so I'm about to talk about the Nittany Lions in a second. So that's one question. Another question is, what does Michigan have in Joe Milton. Joe Milton's a name that I don't think is on the national radar yet. Joe Milton will be the starting quarterback for Michigan. And you may be asking yourself, again, if you've been tuned out, hey, what about the McCaffrey kid? Well, it's kind of like, well, what about Rocky Massiano? What about the McCaffrey kid? Well, the McCaffrey kid's gone. He's gone. Joe Milton's the guy. He transferred out. Joe Milton won the job. He's the guy. It didn't happen in that order, it happened in reverse order. 6'5", 240, got good mobility, and yet I wonder about three things, because Joe Milton right now has a grand total of 11 passes and 12 runs under his belt at the college level. So I worry and wonder, Where I don't know about worry, but I wonder about poise and about accuracy, just the intangibles, decision-making. I wonder about the intangibles. This is not a team, uh, nor are many teams capable of consistently losing the turnover battle and winning football games. So that's the kind of stuff that you worry about here. Donovan Peoples-Jones, when you're talking about skill out wide, he's gone. Nico Collins opted out. And so you wonder, hey, I mean, I know that maybe there's some receiver talent on the way via the recruiting trail, but right now Josh Gaddis has what he has to work with. So what will they be offensively? Now you know that you have a pretty rock solid defense to lean on, at least you think you know. And I'm, I'm, I think that along with you. But the one thing that I always go back to with Michigan and what I always want to see with them is I just want to turn the TV on. So this Saturday, they play Minnesota. I want to turn the TV on, first couple of weeks, and I just want to look at them in totality and I want to compare them to other teams that we think are either top-notch or on the cusp of being top-notch. Like the last few years, for instance, when I would turn Ohio State on and I would turn Michigan on, they look like different athletes, Caliber athletes, and that's cause they are. And so it's not that you couldn't make a case for maybe Michigan pulling an upset in some of those years, but the list was like eight to ten bullet points long about what they need to go right in order for that upset to maybe materialize. Well, that's not the way it should be. The way it should be, especially when you're this far into your tenure, if you're Jim Harbaugh, is you should just be able to go heads up with Ohio State. That's not happening right now. So Maybe this year brings new things. Maybe Joe Milton is the biggest revelation in college football this year. Uh, Selfishly, I'd love to see that. I'd just love to see Michigan be competitive for more than a nice trip to the Verbo Citrus Bowl, which is where I saw them on January 1st in Orlando and got a nice sunburn in the process. How about Penn State? How about this uh, marriage, this new partnership between Sean Clifford, who uh, inexplicably I refer to as Tom Savage one day when we were doing some Penn State stuff. I know the difference. Trust me, I know the difference. It's just sometimes I'm on autopilot and don't know what I'm saying. But Kirk Soraka, that's a name you won't confuse with anyone, new offensive coordinator there at Penn State. And Sean Clifford, the quarterback there. What do we see? You remember one of the big concerns I think a lot of our Nittany Lion fans had when you originally made the hire, well, you didn't have a concern. I mean, you liked the hire. You loved the hire because you saw what Soraka just did at Minnesota. But then when they take the spring away from you, you had the same concerns that, you know, Georgia fans, for example, were having. Oh man, we went and hired this new coordinator and then we didn't get to install anything in the spring. And how much can you install using Zoom? I don't know. Some teams seem to do all right with it. But the point is, Penn State didn't start when Georgia started. So there's been a little more time, bought. Now, I don't know that there have been a ton more repetitions able to be taken. But just in terms of getting to know each other, getting a feel for each other, trying to get that playbook and that entire system, or as much of it as you can, ingrained in the minds of your players so that you can hit the ground running, that's the big remains to be seen. And we're going to see it pretty quick early on. They play Indiana. Make no mistake, that is a losable game this Saturday. And you know what they have on deck the week after in Ohio State. So, You know, what are they at wide receiver? I think that's a big question for a lot of people with Penn State. And it's going to be until they rectify it in recruiting. But here's what you notice sometimes what you notice sometimes is you're talking about wide receivers in November that were never on your radar in July. And the reason is because, well, maybe you didn't think that the offense was going to be prolific enough and therefore you didn't really spotlight those receivers. But if you've got offensive coordinator figured out and that quarterback, in this case Clifford, is the right guy for that offensive system, all of a sudden a funny thing happens. Receivers just start emerging by default of the system they're playing in and the position they're being put in to succeed, they start emerging and you have a critical mass, which would only be like two or three guys you need here, only, air quotes, exceeding expectation. That's what you watch for early with Penn State. How about Minnesota? I see a lot of folks out there buying some Minnesota stock. I don't blame you. I mean, I understand what they were last year. I understand the P.J. Fleck train, but I think people may be, well, let me me rephrase because I don't have a strong opinion on this. I question whether people are biting just a just a little bit too hard on Minnesota. This program should not be based solely on recruiting, based solely on roster team talent composite rating. Historic data points would indicate that team should not be one that is simply able to reload. That should be a team that has to rebuild. That's what Minnesota should be. Now, could they defy conventional wisdom sure someone does it every year a few teams do it every year i think minnesota's already done that so maybe they continue to do that but they are replacing five of their top six tacklers defensively like i said at ohio state you could reasonably expect them to do that at alabama they do it every year Uh, at, at clemson they do it every year they don't do that every year at Minnesota. And if they do it, they're going three and nine the following year. They're not contending for the division title. But right now, the expectations are them in Wisconsin, right there, contending against each other for the division title. Now, Mike Sanford's coming in as the new offensive coordinator there to replace Soraka, and he's got a lot of weaponry. You got a returning quarterback. You got weapons at running back. You got weapons, especially when Bateman came back at wide receiver. So That's the expectation, I think, is that instead of defense buying an offense time, I think it's the reverse. I think it's offense buying defense time, but what's the style of play that they're gonna have to roll with? And keep in mind, how does that style translate when you get a little deeper into the winter or late fall meteorologically than you normally do? What kind of conditions could that offense be put in to have to play in late November, early December, especially if there's a division title on the line? This is not Major League Baseball where yeah, you can lose a game here or there, it doesn't matter. Every game matters here, man. This is college football. So <laughs> could weather bite Minnesota? That's a sentence I never thought I'd say, so we'll see. And lastly, speaking of the Wisconsin Badgers, how about that offense there? Er, well, not a lot, not everyone, but a lot of you. And we got a surprising number of Wisconsin fans who watch the show and listen to the podcast. We especially have a lot who listen to the Late Kick podcast. Subscribe there. Search for it and subscribe if you haven't already. You have been crying. We want to see Graham Mertz. We want to see Graham Mertz. Give us Mertz. Well, you got him at the expense of an injury, but you got him. So now what do you have? Well, isn't that the question? Because I'll tell you what you normally have. Here's the default setting for Wisconsin. The default setting had been, all right, here's why we want to see Graham Mertz. We want to see Graham Mertz because we just think we know what the ceiling is offensively for us, us being Wisconsin, with Jack Cohn at quarterback. Okay. But see, here's what goes into that default setting. A guy like Jonathan Taylor at running back. Normally, it's what you have there. I'm not saying the cupboard is empty there, but you certainly don't have established star type guys at running back like you normally would. So here, maybe, is what you could be asking the running back or the quarterback, rather, at Wisconsin to do this year. Shoulder more of the load than they normally would. So you're going to take a guy who's unproven And you're also potentially going to ask him to shoulder a lot more of the load, which begs the question, and I'll have this one until I watch him play, how aggressive is Paul Christ willing to be? Sometimes people can get drunk watching the top offenses in the country, and they make it look easy. Like Alabama the other night against Georgia, they made it look easy. They especially make it look easy against inferior competition. Clemson, ditto. Uh, Ohio State has the tendency to do that. Oklahoma has the tendency to do that. It's not easy. It's not that easy. Okay if it were that easy, everybody who recruits halfway decent would look like that. It's not that easy. And especially it's not that easy to transition into that when that's not what you have been. So I know a lot of people have high hopes for this offense. They got high hopes for Graham Mertz. Again, I, I'm, not, I'm, I'm yielding that you guys could be right. Those are some areas I am in the remains to be seen camp on though. All right, let's, uh, let's roll through mood tracker here. We've got some interesting ones. Uh, Let me pull this back up. So we've got some interesting ones here. I almost thought about doing a gift special on this, but I didn't. The mood tracker as we head into week eight, and especially the mood tracker when we look nationally, starts in Athens, Georgia. And Georgia's mood tracker currently is Pursuit of Happiness which is something that we're all trying to attain and achieve. But I am thinking about the movie, The Pursuit of Happiness. And I'm thinking specifically about when Will Smith is standing there with that terrible facial hair, and he's on the sidewalk, and he's, I don't exactly remember what had happened in the movie, but he'd been turned down for a job. And so the tears are rolling down the face, but at the same time, he realized, you know, it's time, it's time to man up. And so he's got tears rolling down his face, but he just kind kind of nods his head yes, And he says, all right, I know what I got to do. Let's go do it. That's exactly where Georgia is right now. Okay, you you just got slapped across the face against Alabama again for like the millionth time in a row. And it hurts. It hurts bad. It hurts if you're Kirby Smart to step to the podium and say, they out-physicaled us on the line of scrimmage. You're not supposed to be saying that when you build a roster like they do. But that's what you said. But the point is, season's not over. You may see them again down the road. So like Will Smith, he eventually got another interview. He eventually became a quadrillionaire you could still win a national championship this year. You could still win the SEC this year. You don't know what JT Daniels could look like. Sometimes you gotta taste your own blood before you end up exceeding anyone's expectations and and succeeding yourself. So that's where Georgia is right now. It's that pursuit of happiness. And there are varying phases of the pursuit of happiness. And they're in that little trough phase right now, but we'll see, we'll see how things turn out for Georgia. At Florida State, my mood tracker has them in processing error territory. this doesn't make any sense. Let me walk you through it. So, I've gotta believe that it was very difficult, to say the least, for FSU fans, alumni, former players, and the like, to watch the early season performances that you saw from this team. It's not easy to watch Georgia Tech come into your building and beat you only to get housed by Central Florida the next week. It's not easy to have to rally from a a large deficit to beat Jacksonville State at home. It's not easy to watch Miami just have their way with you. That's not easy. But then all of a sudden North Carolina comes to town and there's this little five next to North Carolina's name and you beat them and you get up 24 to nothing on them and you hold on for the win and so that's got to alone look like a processing error because it does not jive with what you had seen so far in the season. But this is really what I'm thinking about. What I'm thinking about with Florida State is um, what if you had just skipped the first part of the year and you turned on the last minute of that game and you looked and you saw what Florida State's record was and then you saw you, you beat North Carolina and then you're dumping the Powerade on the coach. And it's like if you were to just have traveled in time from like the the mid-90s or the early 90s and you, you, you arrive present day, you say, what has happened here? In what world are we dousing a coach with anything when we beat North Carolina? But yet on the other side, you're ecstatic because you know what's happened early this year. And all of a sudden now the same team that looked like abject flaming trash against Miami just got off the deck and beat a top five team. And that's no small thing because when you lose the way Mike Norvell has so far in year one and your culture hasn't taken hold and, and the rooting system's not in place, you risk losing your locker room. So it's confirmation and validation for him, but it's also validation for FSU fans that maybe this is the right guy. I mean, obviously you can't lose a locker room and pull an upset like this. Maybe we're finally on our way now. And so you process that. And that, that feels good, but then you realize we got a long way to go because uh, when we're where we need to be, we're not pouring the power aid for beating North Carolina. And that's no knock on North Carolina. That's just a testament to how successful Florida State was once upon a time. How about Notre Dame? Notre Dame is in a place that I like to call saltine life. I don't know how it is where you grew up, but where I grew up in Columbus, Georgia, and just north of there in Harris County, uh, there are two things that people do even if they don't know why they're doing them. One thing they do is they put a Yeti cooler sticker on the back of their vehicle. And the second thing they do is they put a Salt Life sticker on the back of their vehicle. Now, half the people who have those stickers back there don't own a Yeti and couldn't even tell you what Salt Life is. That's just the lifestyle that you're choosing to live there. Well, that's not quite what Notre Dame's living. What they're living is saltine life. You've tasted saltines before. There's not much to them. You go to a barbecue joint, that's what you eat until the food gets there. But right now, this is what Notre Dame football is. It's kind of just saltini. There's not a whole lot of flavor to it. You kind of got what you got. You know, you, you got Ian Book um, barely throwing for over 100 yards against Louisville, and you watch Miami go up and down the field on Louisville. You can't hang 15 points on Louisville, but that's okay because you still win because you got a good defense, and you can do what you're supposed to against these teams, but, I mean, Lord help us, when Clemson comes to town in a couple of weeks, what's it going to take to beat them? It's just there's nothing that pops right now about Notre Dame football. It's a, it's a solid program. It's a, it's a, I've got immense respect for Notre Dame. I defend them at every turn, but I don't even think we need to waste a whole lot of time talking about what needs to change here in order for them to ascend to the top tier. They're B tier right now. In fact, they're they're near the top of B tier. The roster they have, the roster Brian Kelly has built, is good enough to where even without a dynamic presence at quarterback, they're favored against 90% of the sport. That is a very good thing. That's not something to take for granted. However, you're used to that now, for better or for worse, you're used to that. And so you don't want more of that. You want to taste what's on the next level. And uh, right now you got the saltine taste, and you want the barbecue taste. And to get the barbecue, you got to get an elite quarterback in there. We'll see. Tyler Buckner? You know, we'll see. And last but not least, the Tennessee Volunteers. There was a, I thought, a very underrated Paula Cole song back in the 90s. I can't remember if this was the music video where she showed all her underarm hair, but the song was called Where Have All the Cowboys Gone? So just a little variation on that out of Knoxville would have to be Where Have All the QBs Gone? Where have they gone? This is the place that once produced us the likes of Peyton Manning. And now... We got quarterbacks throwing multiple pick sixes against Kentucky only to be benched and see the backup throw a pick. And so then all of a sudden we're talking about maybe playing a true freshman that didn't even get to play early portions of the spring and had COVID. And where have all the the QBs gone? And that's the big question as we wrap the show kind of the same way we started the show. We're talking about this Saturday game they have against Alabama. Is Harrison Bailey the guy? I just need to know. I need to, and that's a Tom Petty song, actually, so we got Paula Cole and Tom Petty. Stevie Nicks did a good cover in Chicago a few years back of I Need to Know, but I need to know about Harrison Bailey. Just, I, I need, because if he's not the guy, then whatever we got to do, we got to do. Transfer route, steal someone's committed quarterback, whatever the case is, I just, I got to get quarterback figured out at Tennessee. Got to get it figured out. So that's the mood tracker right now as we head into week eight for various fan bases across the country. I did forget about this, shame on me, before we do go. We've got some added best bets on the Ramen Noodle Express this week. Now, if you're not following me on Twitter, you missed this. Um, We had to cancel the LSU bet, so we bought out of it. What that means is, if you bet $30 on it, then go bet 30 on South Carolina. In fact, you can get a bigger number probably right now in Carolina. So uh, the game's not off the board. The game's still on the board. We do not feel good at all about the quarterback situation at LSU. Injury situation with Miles Brennan, a lot more serious than even I thought it was, and I've been asking daily people down there about it. So he listen, he may end up playing Saturday. It's off of our board, our personal board. So we are canceling, we're wiping out LSU minus six, uh, go buy South Carolina plus seven to balance that out. So here are the games we are on. We tweeted a couple of these out earlier today. Make sure you're following me on Twitter, because if you're not, sometimes the lines have moved by the time that we come on air. Iowa State, at last check, I want to say it's still at three and a half. We got it at three and a half. Iowa State is at Oklahoma State Saturday. We are taking Missouri plus five at home against Kentucky. And we are taking Cincinnati. Maybe their game won't get postponed this week. We're taking Cincinnati plus three on the road at Southern Methodist. I don't know when we will release the final two. Could be on the podcast, could be on Twitter. Make sure you're following me there, though, at Late Kick Josh. All right, that's a good solid 50-minute show. That's what happens when we haven't been in our home studio for an entire, what has it been, an entire week, Colin? So now we're back and we're live and it feels feels good to be here. So uh, make sure that you haven't, if you haven't already subscribed to the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel, go subscribe to the Late Kick Podcast too. Give us a five-star review there. Thank you so much. And I also wanted to say, in closing, a lot of you have reached out that are probably high school, college, maybe fresh out of college, And you you just have interest in the sports media world. A lot of you have reached out in the past, and occasionally I'll arrange some communication with you guys. So looking to do that again. So if if you want to reach out, if you have questions, if you want feedback, if you want um, just whatever you need, wide spectrum of possibilities, joshpate706 at gmail.com, or you can follow me on Twitter and DM me there at Josh. All right, for Director Colin, for Jordan and Tanya on the podcast side of things, I'm Josh Pate. Thanks so much for watching. Have a great rest of your night, and God bless.